So we are launching a series of studies in the book of Revelation. And please note, these are studies in the book, not through the book. I don't intend to go through the book chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but hit some of the high points and highlights. But before we get into that in the message for this Lord's Day, I thought it would be helpful and important to get a few preliminaries out of the way first, technicalities, so then we can launch into the sermon in full. And so the first thing that I want to say regarding that is that I am preaching from the text of the New King James Version of the Bible. Um, I use that version for a number of different reasons, but in the study of the book of Revelation in particular, it's important, and so I encourage our listeners to use that as the primary translation, not simply because I'm using it and it would be easier to follow, because I do refer to other translations, but because I think that the text on which the translation in the New King James Version of the book of Revelation is based is the traditional text, the proper text. I won't say any more about that, but just to encourage you in that regard. Now, let me say something about the way this book of Revelation has been understood throughout the ages. I don't think anybody listening to this series of messages will find it any surprise that the book of Revelation specifically and the subject of especially Newer Testament Bible prophecy, generally are sources of confusion and profound disagreement among Christians. One of the reasons for that, and I think this is something we need to listen to and pay very close attention to, is that although we have an infallible and errant word of God, the words are divinely inspired, they're directly inspired, they are true and all that they teach, but we don't have infallible and inerrant errorless interpretations. That's one reason there are such varying degrees of agreement or understanding on some things. Now, having said that, by God's grace and the leading of his Holy Spirit, there is broad agreement among Christians of all stripes about the basics of what it means to be a Christian. And that is one of the things that defines those who are or are not, and I mean specifically the creeds of the church. Every Christian ought to be able to affirm the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, all the early creeds of the church, but especially those two I'll mention, the Nicene and the Apostles' Creeds. They define the, the basic sum of what the Christian faith teaches. And you'll notice in those creeds, there's a reference to Christ coming again. But beyond that, it doesn't go into any specifics. So what I'd like to do... <clears throat> is just tell you the four major approaches, and I'm just only going to mention these in passing. I'm not going to go into any detail. But you need to know going into this that there have been throughout the centuries and the millennia four ways that these writings in the book of Revelation have been understood. First of all, there's what's called the historicist or the historicalist view. This is the traditional Protestant understanding of the book of Revelation. And this view sees that the book of Revelation, or claims that the book of Revelation, is an unfolding of the entire broad sweep of the Christian church specifically, from the time of the apostles and Jesus right up to the present day. And so, <clears throat> typically you'll find that they will divide the chapters of the book as relating to specific times of church history. You'll see passages that they refer to and they say, okay, well, uh, this imagery of the locust, for example, that's symbolic of how when the Saracens, the Muslims, invaded uh, Europe 
or they, they, in other words, they, they take these various events that are described in Revelation and they apply them or see that they correspond to specific events in the history of the church beginning in A.D. 1 right up to the present time. Uh, this view was the view, as the title indicates, the historical view of the Protestant Reformation. And so you will find in the writings of men like John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Knox, among others, advocacy of this understanding of Revelation. And another plank in that platform, if I can use that phrase, is the view that the beast of Revelation, the false prophet, Paul's references in uh, Thessalonians and in John's references in the epistles of John to an antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, those are references specifically to the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope of Rome. All right, secondly, there's the preterist view. Now, I'm not going to say much about this view except to say that it is a view that sees most of the events in the book of Revelation and New Testament prophecy. I said most, not all, definitely not all, as in the past. I'm not going to say much more about that because I, in the sermon on the first uh, chapter one, we'll get into the preterist view in a little more detail. And then, secondly, there is the futurist view, which is another one that I'm not going to get into a lot of detail right here because we'll deal, that, deal with that in more detail in the sermon. As the title implies, the futurist view sees most of these events as unfolding in our time. That is, in the far distant future from the days in which John wrote this book. And uh, this view is probably the most prevalent among conservative evangelical-type Christians. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, although the futurist view in one form or another has been held in various segments on and off in different ways throughout the history of the church. Um, so has the idealist view, which is the fourth school I'll mention. So we've got the historicist, the preterist, the futurist. The idealist view, or some people would say it's the spiritualist view, it says, no, the book of Revelation is not meant to be understood on just about any level as it, describing literal events. Rather, these are highly symbolic images that the Lord revealed to John as sort of a guide for how the church is to understand its work and its suffering and its transition throughout history leading up to the second coming of Christ. So it's sort of a guidebook of dealing with persecution or uh, dealing with the struggles of uh, bearing witness for Christ in any time that the message is immediately relevant, therefore, to any time of the church's history, and it, it's, it's meant to be understood in that, that way. I guess I would say also that the issue of the dating of the book of Revelation is extremely important. I'll be getting more into that in the sermon as well. So I just wanted to give this very brief introduction about the text. I, I prefer the New King James, and I would strongly encourage you to use the New King James or the Old King James if you don't have any problem with the language. But the language, I think, is very difficult to understand for myself and for a lot of people, so that's why I prefer the New King James. But the text of the New Testament and of Revelation in particular is... I think very important, and the traditional text, I think, is the way to go. And then these four schools of thought that I just articulated, the historicist, the preterist, the idealist, and the futurist. Let me just say, too, in closing, that we are understanding this book <clears throat> at a point in our history far removed from the first two or three hundred years of the Christian church. So if you were to get in a time machine <clears throat> and go back and, say, land in the the Syrian city of Antioch, where there was a flourishing Christian community, let's say A.D. 300. And you were to say, by the way, 
What view do you hold concerning the revelation according to John? Historicists, futurists, etc. They would probably look at you like you're crazy. Because again, we are articulating this after almost 2,000 years of Christian scholarship. So this was not so clearly understood back then. Doesn't mean they didn't know what they were talking about. They probably understood better than we did some of these things. But these little bits and pieces of aspects that lend themselves to futurism, preterism, idealism, historicalism, they were all present to greater or lesser extent in the early history of the church, but nobody had said, okay, well, this is the futurist view. This is the preterist view. Those things had not been articulated at that point. I hope that you will pay careful attention to our studies. Uh, we'll be getting uh, in chapter one and be moving on in various places of the book. I hope you'll find this a rewarding and challenging study and by God's grace, a blessing to you and your walk for the kingdom of God. Until we speak to you next time, God bless.